Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I am Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we are jumping into chapter 10 of Exodus. We are almost done with the plagues, uh, but not quite, dear listeners. Um, and today also, I am very excited for this. We are going to get into uh, some heavy-duty Jewish mysticism. Um, Jewish mysticism, yes, yes. A warning that, um, as I've mentioned before, I am uh, a Maimonidean rationalist at heart. Uh and uh, uh, so, yes, I will uh, uh, attempt to access my mystical core, but uh, uh, okay. we'll see if I can get into the supernal of the supernals. Well, I will be the interior yang because I think I am a spacey mystic at heart. So, hey, there we go. <laughs> so this should all work out. Uh, although, actually, being a mystic is a very high claim. One, I took uh, mystical theology in seminary, and I remember saying to a friend, "I'm a mystic," and she just kind of laughed in my face because all the mystics. We were reading were you know amazing people with deep deep prayer lives and lives of devotion and understanding of God and I basically am just a dork so, <laughs> so I don't want to make too, I don't want to make heavy claims to my mystical bona fides yes well actually what you meant is that in Dungeons and Dragons you're always the magician that so. that well yes. I'm the cleric but yeah okay. <laughs> Excuse uh, me. Yes. No no bladed weapons for me. Uh let's uh let's jump in here. Uh do you want to start reading this time? Sure. Uh and we are at chapter ten, verse one. Then Adonai said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart in the hearts of his courtiers, in order that I may display these my signs amongst them. Is it courtiers? Courtiers? Courtiers, courtiers is Court- how I say it. Although courtiers. my translation says officials, but I like courtiers better. That's so much easier. For I have hardened his heart in the heart of his officials. Yeah, but official sounds bureaucratic. Courtiers sounds like a bunch of people are just sitting around quaffing wine, which is probably closer to the truth. Yeah, I was going to say, what's the difference between a bureaucrat and a courtier is maybe just how French we're imagining them? No, no, no. I think a courtier, uh, you're getting me to do it. A courtier is somebody who, um, who really has nothing but a decorative purpose. You know, they're, they're just, ah, the, they're just okay. the kingdoms in crowd and they get to ha- hang out with the, the king and go to parties. Okay. Yeah. And actually the Hebrew is just servants. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Anyway. Less dramatic yet. But we have our first of the, uh, uh, mystical reads here. Because uh, God said, come in to Pharaoh. So the question is, why does it say come in to Pharaoh? Right? So we get a text from the Zohar. Now, a a little bit about the Zohar before we actually look at this text. Uh, The Zohar comes out of Jewish Spain about a thousand years ago. We have this revolution of Maimonides, Rambam, this philosopher I've been talking about who I am in love with, sort of the, the rationalist of the rationalists. And what Maimonides eventually says is he says that God is so inherently other that there is nothing we have in common with God. And so we cannot describe God even a little bit, that we can't say God is loving or fearful or angry or vengeful or whatever word we associate with God because these are just human characteristics that we're saying God is sort of the... Uh, mostest, to borrow a word from my six-year-old, of. 
And so in the end, Maimonides says we can say nothing about God. To say God is loving is as absurd as saying God is 15 pounds overweight. But the Zohar and the mystics respond to Maimonides' claim and they say, you're right. We can't say anything about God. So we will instead say everything about God. And so the Zohar emerges out of this world, but it also emerges out of a world in transition. Maimonides is living in tolerant Muslim Spain, and the Zohar comes out of the north of Spain, which is uh, more and more a part of Christendom, where Jews are uh, experiencing more and more oppression and more and more suffering. And so the Zohar both emerges out of this experience of increasing oppression, but it also becomes popular over the next few centuries because... As Christendom enters into Spain, Jews are kicked out. Uh, and this is as traumatic of a moment as there's ever been in Jewish history. Two-thirds of all Spaniards today have recognizable Jewish genetics, um, to give you a sense of the scale of this. And so Jews end up throughout the Mediterranean and North Africa and the Arab world. And this mystic read is particularly meaningful for us in a moment where we feel like rationalism has let us down, that the hope for a future has let us down. Uh so there's the background of the Zohar. Any thoughts on that before we dig into this actual text? Well, just a few more questions. So um, my friend Rabbi Fievel Strauss uh, told me once that uh, the Song of Songs f- features very prominently in Sephardic Judaism. Um, hmm. In fact, to the point where I think they sing it or every uh, Shabbat, but I could be right. Yeah, well I done. Every it. Friday night. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, the Son of Songs is the great mystical text of Christianity as well, you know, often read as a love song between the soul and God, and, and all these famous Christian mystics have commented on it in one way or another, most most prominently Bernard of Clairvaux and Teresa of Avila, who was herself a Spaniard, and not only a Spaniard, but of Jewish descent. Um, so... Uh, it seems like those two traditions go strongly together, right? <laughs> like there's, um, I think in both our religions, there is this kind of recognition that God may be beyond our understanding. And yet we seek relationship with God and, and, and in seeking that relationship, we're willing to use pretty much any metaphor that comes to hand to describe it. You do have a soul of a mystic. I can hear it coming out here already. But, uh, yeah, so there, there. So I, I'm thoroughly on the side of the of the Zohar here, I th- and I really love that idea that um, instead of going for the nothing, let's go for the everything, realizing that in the end they're more or less <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's dig into this text here. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, yeah. this is sort of the hero of the Zohar. Uh, he's a rabbi, a mystical rabbi who lives in the second century. Uh, the Zohar, of course, is being written about a thousand years after that. Uh, rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai continued, It is now fitting to reveal mysteries connected with that which is above and that which is below. Why is it written, come in to Pharaoh? Ought it not rather have said, go to Pharaoh? It is to indicate that God brought Moses into a chamber within a chamber, into the abode of the supernal mighty serpent that is the soul of Egypt from whom many lesser serpents emanate. Moses was afraid to touch him because his roots are in supernal regions and he approached only his subsidiary streams. When God saw that Moses feared the serpent, he said, come in to Pharaoh. 
Okay, now you're uh, you're the mystic, okay. so I'm counting on um, you to explain this to us here. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, man. So, <laughs> uh, I think what we've got going on here is this notion that Pharaoh in Egypt themselves are not actual physical geographical places or people. That what we are dealing with, and Carl, I think this has been the approach that we've taken this whole podcast, that what we are dealing with here is instead something yeah. deeper than that, something that exists within the world or within sort of like certainly the world of humanity. Um, go to Pharaoh, meaning go inside the deepest of the evil. Uh, right. That all that the other, all evil of the other evil springs from, springs from right? This notion that in the end, whatever evil we are experiencing is uh, a stream emanating from Egypt. Uh, or to say it differently, Egypt itself, Mitzrayim um, in Hebrew, means between the narrow places. Right. And literally, we're talking about the geography there, right? Uh, how you get from Israel to Egypt uh, between the narrow straits. But it becomes an idea that it is narrowness, that that is what we mean by Egypt. That's not this geographical place or the people that live there. It is the notion of narrowness that is Egypt and that is being trapped in Egypt. A lack of imagination, of moral imagination, of compassionate imagination. A lack of, yeah, I like that. Of, of uh, the, the capacity to imagine God, really, um, and all the fullness that one can imagine God. Uh, that's that's really interesting, and and so Moses in this midrash is actually afraid to touch the heart of that evil, um, and so he instead goes to the to one of the subsidiaries, one of the representatives of that evil, which is Pharaoh himself. Hmm. So, hmm. Uh, which in in a certain way goes directly to what we were talking about about. Uh, both uh, Rambam and mysticism, right? Like in some ways, evil too is too great and powerful for our minds to fully grasp. We can't, mm. we can't know its full extent. What we can know is the places where it shows up. We are at verse two. Go to Pharaoh or go into Pharaoh. This is from verse one. For I've hardened his heart in the hearts of his... Uh, servants in order that I may display these, my signs among them and that you may recount in the hearing of your sons and in your son's sons, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I displayed my signs among them in order that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, thus says Adonai, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may worship me. For if you refuse to let my people go tomorrow, I will bring locusts on your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They shall devour the surviving remnant that was left to you after the hail. And they shall eat away all your trees that grow in the field. Moreover, they shall fill your palaces and the houses of all your courtiers in all of Egypt. Something that neither you nor your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen from the day they appeared on earth until now. And with that, he turned and left Pharaoh's presence. Yeah, so. Uh, okay, we've got some good drama here. Yeah, we do. These locusts are quite problematic. These locusts are quite problematic. Finishing the work of the hail, right? That which survived the hail mm. is not going to survive this. It, it is incremental damage and, and the incremental loss of hope for the future. 
Right, right. The complete uh, breaking down of the Egyptian state, really. Yeah. So let's let's just forge ahead and 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 get to commentary in a minute. Um, Pharaoh's officials said to him, "How long shall this fellow be a snare to us? Let the people go, so that they may worship the Lord their God." Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So just to pause there to point out that that the trick of breaking up Pharaoh's court into separate factions has worked. That it they has are worked. Yes, we're seeing struggling internal internally. divisions. Yeah. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go worship the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds because we have the Lord's festival to celebrate. So going back to verse 7 for a second, this line, are you not aware that Egypt is lost? Right? What a powerful recognition that at some level they think they've lost everything they can. Or at the very least, they're acknowledging that they have lost their country and perhaps their people. Uh, Right. And what's going to happen now, these next plagues are going to be much more personal and much less communal. Right. And going on, I think uh, it's kind of the curtain is pulled back a little here um, where the officials who are really supporting Moses and Aaron at this point, because they're more worried about these plagues than Pharaoh is, uh, they're saying, you don't really need to take everybody to do the thing, do you? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, they're kind of, they're kind of seeing through the ruse. Um, but it's very interesting to me that, uh, Moses and Aaron's response is, don't you get it? This is a festival, right? Like, this isn't just, uh, a few representatives can go and do this worship. It belongs to the entire community in the way that a festival would, would belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yes. Yes. It's also a notion that this is not fundamentally a religious right, R-I-T, in the sense of it's not fundamentally something that has to be done that their God requires, that it is fundamentally a religious moment that is about community. Right. Right, Which I think is one of these questions that we have in modern, contemporary, 21st century congregations today. How much of what we are doing when we come together on a Saturday or on a Sunday uh, is about some sense of doing something that God desires or requires or that mystically affects the divine realm? And how much are we gathering together for the sake of creating community and the power and the holiness that can emerge from that? Well, I think the former sense has been largely lost. We don't really think that we are sustaining the universe through our worship, which is something that our ancestor thought, certainly. Um, but I, but here I think this is kind of both, because depending on the needs of the situation, Moses and Aaron seem perfectly willing to claim that it is a divine right, um, R-I-T-E. You know, because uh, a few chapters back, they were saying, uh, our religious observances are so disgusting to you that we really have to go far away. We can't just do it here, <laughs> right? So they want it, they want it both ways or... Um, they're willing to use religion or religious rights to get what they need when they need it. Hmm. Well, you know, which that can seem a little gross and utilitarian, but I think it can also be a mission statement for religion. 
Well, right, because the question is, who is religion for? Is it for us or is it for God? And even if we believe that we are mystically sustaining the universe through our worship, that's really for us. I mean, God would go on without the universe. (laughs) So we might enter into the work of God, but I don't think there's any assumption that what we're doing feeds or sustains God Mm. in any way. Mm. Religion fundamentally becomes about making us in the world better. That's right. That's right. Okay. Verse 10. But he, presumably this is Moses. No, Pharaoh? Uh, Moses replied. I think it's Pharaoh. Yes. Yeah, I think it's Pharaoh. Pharaoh. But Pharaoh said to them, the Lord be with you the same as I mean to let your children go with you. Clearly you are bent on mischief. Now, what do you get as the translation at the end of this phrase of 10? I, it's so weird because my reads, the Lord indeed will be with you. If ever I let your little ones go with you, plainly you have some evil purpose in mind. Oh, except if you read it sarcastic, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. He's like, yeah, sure. I'm going to let your little ones go with you. You think I trust Mm. you that much? So I guess I'm also asking about these last three words there. Clearly you were bent on mischief. Uh, Oh, the literal translation is there is evil before your face. Yeah, my translation is you have some evil purpose in mind. You have some evil purpose in mind. So there's a great midrash uh, that Rashi picks up. I'm not sure what to make of this. He says that there's a star named Ra'ah. That's the word uh, for evil here. That's actually a god within the Egyptian hierarchy. And Pharaoh says to them, with my astrology, I see that this star is ascending towards you in the desert and that it is a sign of blood in slaughter. So the rabbis are saying that Pharaoh is seeing this future at Sinai when the Jews will uh, sacrifice to the golden calf and the destruction that will happen to them in that moment. Um, right. We'll look at it later when we get there, but uh, God is intent on destroying the people at that point, And Moses stops them. But according to this Midrash, what's happening is Pharaoh is seeing their destruction as if Moses didn't stop God. And that it is actually this moment right here that God says, okay, I am not going to do this. I shall not make Pharaoh into a prophet upon you. Uh, So this star of blood instead becomes transformed into uh, the moment of circumcision, this sign within sort of the the little literal physical body uh, of the Jews who are leaving Egypt. Um, so again, I, I don't know what to make of this other than it is this total disintegration of time and it's a view of sort of morality, uh, in the implications of our actions that is way beyond, um, sort of just the immediate and the clear and is much more sort of butterfly effect kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea what to make of it either. The, all the blood stuff in, uh, cause it says at the end of the Midrash, um, this is the meaning of what it is said this day. I have rolled away the reproach of the Egyptians from you for they were saying to you, we see blood over you in the desert. Um, but it reminds me of, of that moment when Moses and Zipporah are heading down into Egypt and Zipporah is the bride of blood mm. and their son is circumcised. Um, 
So, so yes, I have no idea what to make of this story other than yeah, crazy yeah. story. Crazy story with an implication that our blood, kind of the full extent of our humanness, our physicality is always going to be involved in this no matter what. Um, you can't escape the impact on physical bodies. Yeah, you can't. Uh, so, right. right. I mean, that that's part of the focus of the discourse that you find within the contemporary civil rights movement, the black lives matter, right? It's very much a focus on the impact that institutional racism has literally on black bodies. Right. Right. Well, and all Christian mysticism is very concerned with blood. I mean, there, there is of course the obvious blood of the Eucharist, but if you, um, if you go and look at some of those medieval uh, crucifixes and images, the bloody Christ is very, very central. Um, and, you know, we might say that he's bearing the wounds of the whole world, but there is something very visceral, uh, almost gross, almost body horror-esque about the way he's depicted. Uh, and, once again, maybe it has something to do with um, this this desire not to allow our religion to become totally abstract, mm. to kind of admit our ignorance of ultimate things, but also still keep it so close to our bodies that our our blood and viscera are involved in it. Just spitballing here. I'm, I don't really know. I like it. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's move on. Verse 12. Then then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt so that the locusts may come upon it and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When morning came, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came upon all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts. It had never been before, nor ever shall now, be again. They for covered, those of you out there yeah. uh, uh, objecting and pointing to Joel 2-2, uh, where we are told that there was another reference to a plague of locusts like there has never been. Uh, have no fear, Rashi is here to clarify that the Egyptian plague is the worst plague of locusts that ever happens with only one species of locust involved while the plague in Joel is a collection of different species, and thus they are not contradicting each other. <laughs> I'm so glad that's there, because that it was, was really bothering me. Me too. <laughs> me too. But, you know, just so uh, uh, we can get that clarity, if not uh, just the gross-out gross, gross out factor of really thinking about what locusts are like here. Yeah, but this is not my favorite locust bit. We'll get to the favorite locust uh, yes. uh, midrash in in, uh, in from just which a our, our uh, episode uh, will take its title. I believe it will. Um, Pharaoh hurriedly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, "I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Do not forgive my sin just this once, or do forgive my sin just this once, and pray to the Lord your God that at the least He remove this deadly thing from me." So he went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. The Lord changed the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, and it's time for your favorite locust teaching here. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, I'm trying to find it here. This is uh, Midrash Rabbah. When the locusts first came, the Egyptians rejoiced and said, let us gather them and fill barrels with them. I imagine they rejoiced because they wanted to eat the locusts. Uh, they're delicious, locusts and honey. Yeah. Come on. All right. Then did God say, wretches, will you rejoice with the plagues I have brought upon you? Immediately, God turned a very strong west wind. There remained not one locust in all the borders of Egypt. Even those that have been pickled in their pots and barrels took wing and fled. So we have zombie pickled yes, locusts. we do. Zombie pickled locusts. But this is almost uh, opposite, isn't it, to the reading uh, one would expect to make from Exodus? Because this is not God taking pity on the Egyptians but God saying, uh, you don't get to eat these, and, and taking them away. There, there's no benefit to be derived from the plague, yeah. Though I love this, I sort of have this Harry Potter-esque image in my head of, you know, all the children running through the streets grabbing pickled lo- locusts from the air. Yeah, um, and, and stuffing them in their mouths as they go. Yes, exactly, right. exactly. <laughs> Although since they're zombie pickled locusts, that could be quite unpleasant, really. Interesting texture, certainly. (laughs) Yeah, well, doing strange things to one's intestines, I imagine. Yes, Uh, yes. All right, so the zombie-pickled locusts have come and gone, and yet Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. Although if he had eaten some uh, zombie-pickled locusts, he might have uh, heartburn. Yes, you got to watch that. You always take your Pepsid when you're having your zombie pickle. <laughs> um, All right. So, verse 20. But Adonai stiffened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. No. So, again, and Adonai God said to Moses, Oh, God is acting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah these last five yeah. uh, plagues, God, God stiffens Pharaoh's heart. And then Adonai said to Moses, hold out your arm toward the sky that there may be darkness upon the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be touched. Moses held out his arm toward the sky and thick darkness descended upon all the land of Egypt for three days. People could not see one another, and for three days no one could get up from where he was. But all the Israelites enjoyed light in their dwellings. Okay. So we did a Bible study uh, at a church. Uh, the church staff did the Bible study, and we were we were we're wondering about this darkness and what it means. And I think we, uh, one of the things that got brought up was that such darkness would really mean the end of community. Uh, so if you're in total mm. darkness for that long, you can't find anyone to be in community with. Uh, you, you can't be in, uh, in the presence of other people in a way that, that will be, helpful or productive. Maybe I'm making too much of this. I'm, now I'm thinking about like blind people who find plenty of ways to be in community. But let's let's just say that this darkness is keeping people in their houses, is keeping them afraid, huddled in. Um, what we've seen then is the unity of Pharaoh's court ripped apart, and now we're seeing kind of this entire culture splintered into individual units which cannot reach out to each other. Hmm. Hmm. Well, in fact, there's a Hasidic teaching here that there is no greater darkness than one in which, quote, a man did not see his fellow. Yeah. Right? That's from 23. Uh-huh. In which a person becomes oblivious to the needs of his fellow human being. Yeah. And when that happens, a person becomes stymied in personal development as well. Nor did anyone get up from his place. 
So, again, what we're saying is that the plagues are an unveiling of things that already exist. Mm. Uh, and uh, these people, because they cannot see each other's needs or care, bring themselves to care about them, are actually, in fact, already living in deep darkness. Hmm. Hmm. Huh. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is it is, once again, unmaking creation. You know, let there be light. No, let there be darkness. Let there be darkness. Yeah. Let there be darkness. So things have gotten very bad for the Egyptians at this point. So we, we've got, just to talk darkness a little differently, we've got a different Midrash on darkness here altogether. Uh, why did God bring darkness upon the Egyptians is the question. Mm-hmm. Because there were transgressor, transgressors in Israel, Jews, who had Egyptian patrons and who lived in affluence and honor and were unwilling to leave. So God said, if I bring upon them publicly a plague from which they will die, the Egyptians will say, just as it has passed over us, so it has passed over them. Therefore, God brought darkness upon the Egyptians for three days. And at that point, a plague struck those Jews who had been co-conspirators. And the Jews were able to bury them during these three days uh, without the Egyptians knowing. So I, I don't know what to make of this imagination, right? This rabbinic imagination. What's the point that the rabbis are trying to bring out here? I'm not sure. That's an interesting idea that there are people who are collaborating with the Egyptians, just as there are people like Pharaoh's daughter who seem to be on the side of the Israelites. Uh, and doesn't it say to us really that we, we have choices on either side? Uh, we can suck up to dominating an evil power or we can, we can, choose to side with the oppressed. Hmm. Well, and following that Hasidic teaching, right? That, uh, what does it mean to walk in lightness? It means to see your fellow human being as an image of God. And what does it mean to walk in darkness is to not see your fellow human being as an image of the divine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, I wonder, does, Does this also imply a feeling of the absence of God for, I mean, of course the Egyptians don't really Mm. hold to, to God in this way. Although Ra is the sun God. So in their, they're in darkness. It's once again, another Egyptian divinity, uh, being defeated, (laughs) um, totally undermining the Egyptian God. Yeah. Interesting. yeah. Yeah. There's that, um, but then there's also I'm I'm just thinking about mystical senses now and how important light is for a metaphor. You know, we literally have enlightenment. So here we have the exact opposite. We have a darkening of the minds and of the souls. Mm. Um, nice. Yeah, it's really quite sad. All right, should we should we finish it off? We shall. Uh, verse twenty four. Is that where we are? I believe so. Pharaoh then summoned Moses and said, Go worship Adonai. Only your flocks and your herds shall be left behind. Even your children may go with you. Right? So still trying to hold on to them somehow. Yep. But Moses ups the ante. Moses says, You yourself must provide us with sacrifices and burnt offerings to offer up to Adonai our God. Our own livestock too shall go along with us. Not a hoof shall remain behind. For we must select from it for the worship of Adonai our God. And we shall not know that... Uh, we shall now know what we are to worship Adonai with until we arrive there. Huh. But Adonai stiffened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not agree 
to let them go. Pharaoh said to him, be gone from me. Take care not to see me again. For the moment you look upon my face, you shall die. And Moses replied, you have spoken rightly. I shall not see your face again. So what's so striking? Yeah, yeah. What's so striking to me about this is it it suddenly became abundantly clear to me that the, the Israelites have no idea what their worship is like. Which makes sense, you know. I mean, once once they get to Sinai, of course, they've never done they, this before. Yeah, they've never done this before. They get a golden calf because they really don't know what they're doing. Eh. Um, <laughs> but it's no. also a sorry. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say it would be a strikingly strange idea for us, for instance, to say, uh, "Let's get together on Friday evening," or "Let's get together on Sunday morning," and people to say, "Well, what are we get, what are we going to do?" And we'll say, well, "We won't know until the time God will tell us." Bring everything you got. <laughs> we don't know sure. Yeah, bring everything you got. We don't know what we'll need. <laughs> we we no longer operate in this way. Is all I'm saying. Um. Yeah. Uh, so we, I. I I kind of wish we did. I mean, there's something very improvisational about it, which uh, I feel I feel a loss that we don't. Mm. Yeah, you know, Episcopalians and Jews, at least as I understand the Episcopalian Church, we both come from traditions that uh, have the beauty of being ritualized. Yep. But that also comes with a deficit. Yep, that's true. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so this, this teaching that you keep bringing. Uh, that I don't know I had thought of before you, that fundamentally what's happening with these plagues is the unmaking of the Egyptian gods. Uh Uh-huh. There's no Egyptian god in the end higher than Pharaoh. And we've got this phrase in uh, 28 that is so godlike, right? This is like that moment when Moses is going to stand at Sinai and ask to see God's backside because you can't see God's face and live. Pharaoh says to him, be gone, take care not to see me again for the moment you look upon my face, you shall die. He's saying, in some ways I am God, right? Yeah. And Moses yeah. is replying, you got it. I'm not going to see you again, but it's not going to be <laughs> what you think. Right. It's not because I acknowledge that you're divine in any way. Yes. Yeah. That's good. I should say that uh, that teaching, uh, I hadn't really heard it before until we started the study either. And um, Robin brought it up last week. And also in my regular Bible study at St. John's, people have been bringing it up. And I was asking about it a week or two ago. And apparently there is a documentary out there uh, which lays this all out. Some kind of PBS documentary, which I had never heard of or seen. (laughs) So... um, so I can't I can't claim any credit for it. But I have to say I have more simply I guess there's also a PBS documentary that tries to explain all these things through science. Um and that I have almost no sympathy for. Me too. Uh, Me too. I think that's a misreading um and is just part of our own scientific uh mindset. Totally with you. I I don't quite understand why you would believe that these things, these plagues had to have happened naturally and not through miracles. And at the same time, treat the text as almost divine in the sense that you're treating it like an actual history. Right. Those two things don't, I don't understand why those go together. Yeah, Um, I don't either. I, well, except I think it is part of this 20th century need to prove that religion isn't irrational. hmm. Um, 
And, you know, the truth is, uh, because we're dealing with ultimate things that nobody really can understand, it's beyond our rationality. So it is kind of irrational. Yeah. Um, yeah right. do, we, do we have the chutzpah to, right? I, I don't think any of us want irrational religion, but do we want a rational religion? Yes, that is exactly it. Because what we want is religion to be rational within itself, you know, for these systems of thought to develop and, and test new thoughts against what has been uh, articulated before. Uh, we want a kind of systematic faith that can explain a lot of different things in a way that uh, is coherent. Um, and that is not irrational, but it is... Uh, much, you know, it's it's predicated on ideas that don't really have that much to do with the scientific method. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that that is a challenge. Um, and interestingly enough, and this is just an aside before we end, but I I went to uh, a talk in a mosque. You know, it was uh, after the election, and it was. Uh, you know, let's inv- let's build some understanding between our different faiths, and it, it was quite good. But the professor who presented there was really trying to show the rationality of Islam in the way that um, many Christians try to show the rationality of Christianity, the scientific mm-hmm. rationality, I should say, and I imagine many Jews do too. So. Uh, it's nice to know that uh, one thing that we have in common is that we're all deeply insecure about scientific knowledge and have become like, you know, kids on the playground who are are engaged in a giant game of proving that we're cool <laughs> because we're like the cool kids. So uh, I wish we could all just give that up and be like... Uh, that's, that's the, those things are important. I'm really glad, you know, that scientific rationality exists. Uh, but I, I don't necessarily need to, uh, prove my, my own faith in those terms. So, all right. But you know what I do need to do? What do you need to do? Just go eat some, so I, I need to go eat some zombie pickled locusts. Zombie locus. pickled uh, locusts. Yes. It's sounding really tasty to me right now. Uh, so I will tell you, dear listeners, that Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus is produced by Daniel Bogard and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christ Church Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Lost in the Wilderness, a DSO Bigri, uh, wait, Lost in the Wilderness, uh, is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, you can find me online at prayerbookart.com. And Daniel, what do you uh, want to You can find me at nojokeproject.com. Excellent. And we will look for you there. All right, dear listeners, thank you so much. And uh, Daniel, safe travels. I hope it all goes really well. I know you're confused. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm back really from my trip by now. Oh, oh <laughs> Because yeah. we're magically yes, a week in the right. future. Well, I'm, I'm glad it went so well. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible, really very moving. Everyone involved. Yes. <laughs> Good. Good. That's wonderful. And I thought you were brilliant. Yeah, I, uh, I did too, your, really. Your yes. Comments, your answers to questions. Yes. You should be proud yes. of that. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you. We will next talk to you week. next week. Take care. <laughs>